This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Much of the last year, as I sat on the industry committee, we studied Canada's copyright framework and what changes could be made to improve it. We tabled that report, and I'm very proud of all the hard work that went into it. And I hope the government accepts almost all the recommendations. One thing we did not recommend was to extend Canada's general copyright term from life of the author plus 50 years to life plus 70 years. Canada's copyright term is compliant with the Berne Convention and has served us well. It's my opinion that the exclusive rights to a work being held for 50 years after an author's death is entirely appropriate and sufficient. Extending that term is not. Copyright term extension has emerged as a major policy issue in Canada in recent months. Canada's general copyright term is life of the author plus 50 years, and successive governments, both liberal and conservative, have rejected lobbying pressure to extend the term by an additional 20 years to life plus 70. That changed with the new NAFTA, called Kuzma in Canada or the USMCA in the U.S., which includes a life plus 70 years requirement. Now, Canada negotiated a 30-month transition period with no need to extend the copyright term during that time. That has led to some interesting developments. The Copyright Review recommended that any extension include a registration requirement for the additional 20 years, which in turn has led to intensive lobbying from some groups for the Canadian government to extend the term of copyright now as part of treaty ratification. Paul Held is a law professor at the University of Illinois, where he has led the world in conducting extensive empirical analysis on the effects of copyright term extension and the value of the public domain. His work has used some creative methods examining data on sites such as Amazon and Wikipedia to learn more about the effects of term extension. He joined me on the podcast to discuss his findings and new work he has been doing on data in Canada. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be here. Of all the people that have studied copyright term extension, uh, you really stand out as the person that's done just this incredible array of studies on these issues, looking at the real world impact of what the public domain means and the impact of term extension. So I'm really pleased we have the chance to delve into some of your work and their implications for Canadian policy. I thought as a start, uh, we might open with a bit more from you about the kind of work that you've been doing over the past decade around uh, copyright, the public domain, and term extension, and what some of those key takeaways have been. Sure. Yeah, I got interested uh, in the issue uh, in really about 1998. That's when we had our big 20-year copyright term uh, extension, which was eventually litigated up to the Supreme Court. And I became really interested in the policy justifications for extending a copyright term to existing works because there's no incentive-based argument that anybody was making, right? The, the works uh, subject to the extension already existed. They didn't need any, any further incentives. So the, the main justification uh, from some very prominent economists was, uh, well, when something like this, when works fall into the public domain, they don't have owners anymore. Uh, there's nobody there to sort of shepherd them and be good stewards, and there's nobody that has a 
uh, a monopoly profit motivation to public the work, uh, to publish the works. So uh, they're likely to uh, fall uh, out of print or, or not to be uh, exploited. And the sort of uh, availability uh, argument uh, struck me as, as being pretty testable. We, we can see a lot of works have fallen into the public domain over the years, and maybe we should actually study them and see what happened <laughs> after after they they no longer were uh, were owned. So the first study I did just was on some on bestsellers, uh, sort of before and after the magic dividing line in the United States, which at the time was 1923. It's 1925 now, but all works before uh, 1923. Uh, uh, for a long time were in the public domain and all works uh, published after 1923 were at least theoretically still protected by by copyright. So I, I chose a sample of bestsellers uh, from uh, uh, before 1923 and then for 10 years after 1923. And what was inter- I tracked them over time. And what was interesting was up until about 2001, the, the level of availability uh, was about the same for both for both samples. So there was certainly no extra availability associated with the uh, with the copyrighted works. But once you hit about 2001, 2002, you had this this big spike uh, of availability for the public domain work. So so by the time um, uh, of my study date, with it, which I think was 2008, uh, almost 100 percent of the public domain bestsellers uh, were uh, back in print. Uh, but only I think 72 of the uh, copyrighted bestsellers were were in print, which suggested that there's some uh, sort of technological leap that happened in the early 2000s, probably associated with better scanning equipment, better computer software, um, better printing, better and cheaper printing uh, technology. So um, uh, various publishing companies were able to take advantage of the technological change that happened then to bring a lot of works back into print. Uh, and I was presenting this data in, in London, and this really smart guy named Jeremy Phillips, who's an IP lawyer over there, sort of raised his hand and he said, oh, this is really interesting, but it's, you know, it's just bestsellers and there's millions of other books. Couldn't you just take a random sample of what's available uh, as the new edition on, on Amazon or, or something like that? <laughs> and I said, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so I hired, uh, uh, I'm at the University of Illinois here, which is a, a very computer savvy school. So I hired uh, uh, research assistants to uh, uh, create a, a random ISBN number generator. And we fed 2000 random ISBN numbers to Amazon every day for actually every hour for <laughs> about six weeks until we had a nice big uh, random sample of uh, fiction and uh, some uh, nonfiction books. And what it showed was really quite, uh, it was really quite extraordinary. Um, We found that, not surprisingly, there was a lot of new books uh, for sale on Amazon from the year 2000 to 2010. We did this study in about 2011. You know, of course, they're new books. uh, You would expect them to be uh, 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 quite available currently uh, on Amazon. But uh, when you looked at books from the 90s and 80s, uh, there's this tremendously quick drop-off. We had a, a sample of 2,300 books, but only about 25 of them were, were published in the 1980s. So this massive drop-off, uh, and I've got the graph in front of me, which what I can sort of describe, there's this huge bump uh, starting in 1923. So the moment um, a book, I should say, uh, 
all the books in the sample, all the titles in the sample that were in the public domain were much, much more available. So we have, you know, books from the 1880s were, uh, I think, 10 times more available than books from the 1980s, which doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? Books from the 1980s should be more attractive. They're more recent. Uh, there should be a bigger market for them out there. Uh, but they went out of print. Publishers never brought them back. Um, and copyright basically kept them locked up and unavailable. It still keeps them locked up and unavailable uh, to the public, whereas the uh, public domain titles uh, were, you know, jumped on uh, by uh, a set of publishers who have a business model of making public domain titles available. So it's this very odd looking chart where all the new books are missing and all the old books <laughs> seem to be in, seem to be in print. So this, you know, cast doubt, cast serious doubt on this argument that uh, uh, works need to, need to have owners. They need to be kept forever under copyright in order for them to be uh, uh, available to the, uh, to the public. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating finding because much of what we're hearing, or at least some of the talking points that have arisen here in Canada about the, from those seeking to extend the term of copyright is that if you extend the term of copyright, that allows publishers to have a a longer runway in the sense of rights holders, a longer runway to, to profit from the underlying copyrighted works. And if they do that, they'll have more money to create. Uh, or to publish more, publish more books. And it sounds like what you're finding is that from a, from a, in the real world perspective, in terms of what actually happens in the publishing world, is that oftentimes once a book goes out of print, if it doesn't have a large enough market, there just isn't enough of an incentive to keep publishing. Whereas once those works enter into the public domain, you get this new array of publishers, almost a new life into those works and their inva- their availability actually increases relative to many of the newer titles. Right. That, that, that's true. And one thing that we always need to keep straight when listening to publishers argument is that uh, they're right. Copyright term extension benefits them. Uh, they, they get a 20 years extra royalties for whatever movies or, or music or books uh, that they're publishing. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, uh, when the legislature is trying to decide whether a law is good or not, the question isn't whether there's some private party out there that's that's uh, going to uh, make a profit at the public's expense, uh, but rather whether there's an overall public benefit from the law that's uh, that's being considered. And it's 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 impossible, at least given my research, to see any sort of public benefit from term extension at all. All you see is this uh, uh, diminishment of availability of uh, book titles, uh, at least, and an associated uh, price increase that, that's associated with copyright, right? Not surprisingly, copyright works more expensive than works in the public domain. So the public pays a, a price in terms of dollars, public pays a price in terms of uh, lost availability, and the only winner is the, the private uh, profit of the uh, publishing company. I mean, that has huge implications from certainly from a cultural policy, uh, as well as a broader access policy for Canadians or for for whichever countries considering some of these issues is so much of the discussion has also focused on the implications for access and, and what you're finding, of course, is that costs will increase, which uh, should reduce is, is likely to reduce access, makes it more expensive to access that. In fact, some of the some of these works simply won't even be available or as readily available as they would be in the public domain. Do you, do you have a sense as to whether or not the, some of the, the research that you've done with Amazon, let's say in the United States would hold here in Canada? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I've been, um, 
expanding this uh, research to other jurisdictions over the years. I had a wonderful sabbatical in South Africa, so I did a study of South African book markets. But uh, I've looked at both the UK and uh, Canada and find a, a similar uh, pattern. It's a little different sample. I, I, there are um, really nice uh, Wikipedia pages for Canadian authors and UK authors. So you can literally just get a list of, of hundreds, actually thousands of, of authors. And uh, uh, for the UK authors, I, I took only the ones who were also mentioned in the Oxford Companion uh, to English literature. So sort of the more well-known authors in, in the sample. And uh, basically, uh, what you find or what I found is, is books published uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, and 1900s. Uh, these are all in print uh, at, a, at a 97% rate, 95% rate for the, for the 19, 1900s. I think 1900, 1910 was at a 91% rate. Uh, most of these books are in the public domain. Uh, it's possible that one or two aren't if somebody, you know, uh, published in, in 1880 and didn't die until 1980 or something like that. Um, but when you go closer to the present day, the availability drops off. So books published in the 1980s in the UK are available at a 45% rate in the 1970s at a 45% rate. So, so half the, uh, the rate that we find for uh, similar books that were published uh, almost a hundred years uh, earlier. And that there's really no explanation for, for why a <laughs> hundred uh, year old book should be twice as available other than the fact that uh, it's in the public domain and the, the newer books are, are not because there's no you know, sort of difference in, in quality of these books, at least according to the Oxford Companion. Um, for the Canadian books that I looked at, I, I, I actually didn't try to do any, uh, uh, quality control in that sense. I just, I just took all the, uh, all the fiction authors and all the authors of uh, short story collections that I, that I could scrape off of Wikipedia who were, who were Canadians. Um, so, so there's more obscure authors there, uh, than there are in the UK, uh, example, um, both newer authors and older authors, I should add. But the story is much the same. So uh, Canadian books from the 1890s, uh, are, are in print at an 88% rate from the uh, from the 1900s at an 86% rate from the 1910s at a 73% rate. But you come down to the more recent books, books Canadian books from the 1970s are in print at a 25% rate from the 1980s at a 29% rate. So uh, actually about a third less likely to be in print if they're a more recent uh, book. Uh, again, you know, caused by, uh, uh, by the fact that the newer books are still uh, uh, protected by, by copyright and are owned by people who are uninterested in making them available to the Canadian public. Right, so I, that, so the, the data then suggests slightly different way of, of trying to examine the issue, but comes to much the same conclusion. That, yeah, exactly. here, that here in Canada, the, there, there is greater availability of those books in the public domain. And of course, we have a larger public domain, at least in terms of years, than, the, say, the United States does, because we still are at life of the author plus 50 years. If we were to extend the term of copyright, that suggests that you've got a couple of decades of no new works entering into the public domain, and that causes a really almost a generational delay in the increased availability of those works. Yes, that's, that's right. 
I mean, it's the, the, the harm there when there's the talk about, you know, what is the harm of extending, I think, becomes really crystallizes when you take a look at, at that particular data. You made reference to cost uh, as part of this issue. Have you taken a, a look at the, the implications of term extension and what it does mean for costs of books? Do they, in fact, uh, go up the longer they or remain higher the longer they remain in copyright? Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, you know, what you would expect, I guess, intuitively, that a copyrighted book would cost more because you have to pay an author a royalty, right? Um, but uh, I wanted to to see what the price gap actually looked like. And I've done this in, in the U.S. and in the U.K. and in uh, Canadian and South African book markets. And, and the story is very, very similar. Um, one challenge is to compare apples to apples. So, so. The, the first study that I did, and actually one of the Canadian studies I did too, um, looked at public domain books and copyrighted books sold by the same publisher in the same series. So if you look at you know, vintage classics in Canada by Penguin or, or, or Penguin Classics in, in the United States, they're all published by Random House. They, they have you know, the same quality paper, the same you know, quality uh, cover, the same lack or inclusion of, of illustrations. So, you know, you, you don't have price discrepancies driven by, you know, uh, the quality of, of the physical uh, book that's, that's being printed. Uh, the study I did uh, in the U.S. was the first one uh, I did. And I, I like to uh, do the pricing per page because it turns out older books are a lot longer than newer books. And, of course, the longer a book is, uh, the more expensive it is to print. So it's, it's more accurate to, to do a per page pricing. Um, when, I, when I did that with the U.S. Uh, Penguin Classics, the copyrighted Penguin Classics, all published by Random House, were 50% uh, more expensive than the public domain classics, all published by, uh, uh, by Random House. I did uh, uh, the same thing uh, for uh, vintage classics uh, sold by Random House Canada on, uh, on their website and got basically basically the same, um, the same result. Um, where you find really, really shocking price differences when you look at, at ebook uh, markets. So I looked at, uh, what is that, 1,500 public domain and copyrighted ebooks in the UK coming out of that same uh, UK sample that I mentioned before. Um, the average price for the public domain ebook was one pound 30 and the average price for the uh, copyrighted ebooks was four pounds uh, thirty-four. So this is you know, three times more expensive uh, uh, for the, the copyrighted titles. Looking at Canada, I had a smaller uh, a smaller sample, about five hundred books. But the, the average price of the uh, public domain ebooks in, in Canada, again taken from the same sample that I mentioned before. Uh, was a, a one dollar, one Canadian dollar, eighty nine cents. Average price for the copyrighted titles was eleven dollars uh, Canadian. So uh, five times, uh, a little more than five times as, as expensive. So um, this is really an interesting finding because it, it, this sort of price discrepancy can't just be explained by the fact that oh, publishers have to pay an author a royalty when they uh, sell a copyrighted title, uh, this is evidence of, of actual monopoly pricing, right? Actual monopoly uh, power with all of the, uh, the negative consumer implications that we see in other contexts. 
Well, it's, it's so useful that you've, that you've looked at this from a Canadian perspective. There's been quite a lot of focus recently around ebook related issues, both the, their access and cost. I had Rebecca Giblin on the podcast last year, and she talked about some of her research that also highlighted some of the, some of the research into ebooks and what we see taking place from availability cost perspective. And again, the implications of, of copyright term there. Uh, and so at a time when but policymakers and, of course, librarians and the public more generally is increasingly focused on accessibility, affordable accessibility, and particularly the shift towards ebooks. To see the difference in cost really highlights, it's, it sounds like, the, the real-world effects that, that copyright term can have on, on both cost and access. Right, and there just doesn't seem to be any offsetting uh, benefit to to, uh, to term extensions, particularly bad in Canada, because of course Canadians consume an enormous amount of uh, of American uh, 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 media, right, uh, and American culture. So, um, you know, the the excess profits that are being earned are being exported, <laughs> which makes it uh, even worse, I think, from the Canadian perspective. Yeah, that that issue in terms of where copyright royalties go has been, of course, an ongoing issue. The typically the largest or loudest voices when it comes to the copyright lobby have tended to be international copyright holders, which are by and large U.S. rights holders Sure, that, that have, have, have driven much of the dialogue around copyright reform. And that's been the case now for, for the better part of several decades. Uh, I know one of, one of the other studies that I wanted to, to touch on uh, has to do with work you did with Wikipedia in, a, in a, an attempt to value the public domain. So you've identified both the the access-related issues that can come with term extension, the cost issues that can come with term extension. But I know that you've also tried to identify, well, what is the value of this public domain? And that seems to be something that policymakers ought to be thinking about if they are going to encroach on that public domain um, with the term extension. Can, can you walk me through what you did with respect to the study in Wikipedia and, and the attempt to value the public domain? Sure. That, that was maybe the funnest bit of research I've ever uh... Uh, I've ever done. I had some brilliant collaborators at the University of Glasgow at the Create Center there, and um, uh, we learned that the the UK government was sort of challenging researchers in the UK to uh, come up with some sort of reasonable valuation for at least some corner of the public domain, because of course the policymakers there and everywhere are constantly being lobbied by uh, uh, copyright owners who have really good data on, you know, what sort of uh, earnings and are generated by their uh, by their titles and and uh, how much uh, those titles are are worth and they realized that they sort of had no counter narrative at all um, everybody not everybody but uh, there's a lot of cheerleaders for the public domain and, and we certainly I think have an intuitive sense it's it must be a good thing but they actually wanted some uh, some hard data to uh, uh, sort of uh, Put on the other side of the of the balance when when they're trying to decide what good copyright policy should be. So we thought about a number of different possible ways to value the public. We surely can't value all of it, <laughs> all movies and all plays and all books and all poems. Um, but we realized because we spent a lot of time on Wikipedia for various reasons that um, uh, there's a whole lot of public domain images uh, that are on Wikipedia pages, you know, whether it's pictures of, of authors or musicians or natural disasters or microbes. 
And we tried to um, figure out a way to uh, put a dollar value on uh, uh, these images. What, what sort of value is added to Wikipedia because we have a, a lot of images on there due to their public domain status? Um, and one of the first things we did was actually to, to, to get a sense of what percentage of images on Wikipedia uh, are in fact in the public domain, which is about 50%. So uh, this is a lot of, of images because um, uh, I think it's fairly close to 50% of all pages had had an images at the time had an image at the time we, we did the study, and we thought, well, there's sort of two ways we might put a value on an image on a Wikipedia page, and one would would be sort of a cost savings approach. And what would it cost a Wikipedia page builder uh, to buy a license to put uh, an image on on the page? And we did this by discovering that that uh, Corbis, uh, the world's uh, largest uh, uh, licensor of, of photographs, actually licenses and charges a fee for the use of public domain <laughs> images. So we could actually find images that were in the Wikimedia Commons that could be used for free, uh, but were being licensed for, I think at the time, it was about $115 a year uh, for a website use uh, from from Corbis. So, you know, we, we were able to, to calculate a, a, a figure um, using or imagining what uh, it would cost uh, Wikipedia to, to buy a license for these photos that were uh, present on its website. Uh, and I, th I think that was, some, uh, was close to $40 million uh, a year. Um, not, you know, it's not a perfect way to come up with a dollar figure because if Wikipedia actually did uh, have to buy licenses, they'd have pretty good bargaining power. They could probably talk Corbis down from $115 a year, but it's still uh, a decent sized chunk of change. The, the other way and, and the more interesting method that we thought to use was to leverage the uh, uh, assumption in the in the internet literature that the presence of an image on a page uh, drives traffic to the page. Now, nobody knows exactly the magnitude of this effect because 98% of all traffic on the internet is driven by Google, and Google, of course, doesn't make its search algorithm uh, public. So what we thought we'd do is try to reverse engineer the Google search algorithm by looking at the change in the number of page views uh, on Wikipedia pages sort of before and after an image was was added. And we used a, a what's called a, a matched pair technique. We matched authors and musicians who had about the same level of popularity before an image was added, one of whom got an image, one of whom didn't. So we could sort of look at a, a difference in difference um, uh, on, the, uh, on the data. And we did this a bunch of different ways from a bunch of different angles. We got sort of a range of, of answers um, with the, which sort of centered around about 18, 19% of the added traffic to a wiki page seemed to be driven uh, by the presence uh, of an image. Now this is, you know, without knowing the Google search algorithm, this is definitely an estimate. It could be 10%, it could be 25%, but you know, uh, we were pretty confident that it, that it was in the range of the, of the high teens. So, um, you know, once you have a sense of the amount of traffic that's being driven by an image to a page, 
then it's really actually not that hard to calculate the uh, uh, potential uh, advertising value from the extra traffic that's that's driven, right? Because all uh, if Wikipedia decided it wanted to sell advertising, um, it would uh, uh, be paid depending on the amount of uh, uh, visits to uh, pages on its website. So actually not very hard to find estimates as to what the potential uh, advertising value of a, of a wiki page uh, visit is. So plug in all the numbers uh, using the, the 19% and the amount of public domain images in Wikipedia. And we, we came up with a, with a figure of, uh, it was about 250 million. That was $239 million, I think it was at the time. So, you know, it's, it's an imperfect measurement as, as you, as you might guess, given the project, but, uh, but definitely convincing, <laughs> at least to us, that these public domain images have real, uh, monetary value to those who use them on, on Wikipedia. Um, and it was nice to sort of, I've spent so much time on book markets. It was really nice to look at, uh, at public domain images instead of public, public domain, uh, public domain books. So, Whatever angle you look at it from, it's quite clear that um, there's real calculable dollar value to uh, the public domain. Sure. And, I, and at a certain level, that, of course, shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, the reason that we see this lobbying sure. is because there is that value. Um, but trying to, to put a figure on it and, and discount the claims that, that at a certain level, there's no cost to consumers or no cost to the public, uh, I think, is rebutted once you identify that, in fact, there is real value there. And at the moment, it goes to private hands, to the, the publishers or to other rights holders if the copyright term is extended, and uh, as opposed to ensuring that the public itself is the one that, that benefits. Right. Uh, it's basically a tax. I mean, all of the copyright term extension is it's a tax on consumers and the tax goes to to publishers. And, and the way these laws are written, there's no obligation on the part of copyright owners to to provide any sort of benefit for the public from this, from this tax. And, you know, if it, at least in the U S if you, if, if it was sold as a tax, we'd never have it, <laughs> but you can disguise it uh, in the, in the gar, garb of a copyright term extension and, and, and get away with what is essentially uh, uh, a tax because the public really doesn't, uh, doesn't notice. It certainly didn't notice in the U S in 1998. There's more awareness now. Canadians are vastly uh, more aware of the potential uh, implications here, which is which is a good thing. We've had the benefit of our disaster. I, I think that's right. The, the you know, being able to see what took place in the United States, I think, really did have an impact on the Canadian uh, policy debate. We had successive governments. It's not really a, it's not a partisan issue. Uh -huh. Both the left and the right resist pressures to extend the term of copyright, and it's it's only now with uh, with with that increased pressure coming out of the Trump administration and a new trade agreement that the government caved on the issue, but did so with this at least a transition period. And there's been some interesting discussion about adding in a registration rate uh, as or a registration requirement rather for for those that would want to extend the term to that extra 20 years to ensure that it kind of to ensure that it is compliant both with Byrne, compliant with the trade agreement, and perhaps has the effect of leaving much of the work still in the public domain for those that don't don't decide not to register or seek that that extra extension. 
one of the other issues before we close that I know you've you focused on and has been a subject of discussion here in Canada has to do with rights reversion uh, for artists. It was given a, quite a lot of prominence, speaking of copyright issues that captures public attention uh, here in Canada last year when Brian Adams, a well-known Canadian artist, raised it in just a single committee appearance. And that was enough to spark two committees <laughs> to recommend changes to the Canadian approach. Uh, I discussed uh, rights reversion with uh, Rebecca Giblin on an earlier podcast, but thought I'd, I'd also wanted to touch with you, touching with you on what your research has uncovered on the issue. Right. Um, we have a, a similar uh, reversion uh, scheme in the U.S. as to uh, what's being proposed in, in Canada, which uh, the two committee proposals that, that you mentioned both uh, suggest that authors, musicians, Anybody who signs away their copyright uh, should be able to get it back, no questions asked, 25 years uh, later. Uh, we have that rule at 30, at year 35. So it's, and, and we've had it since 1976. So, so we have a, a decent, uh, history and experience. We, we have a, I, I think a decent sense of, of what happens, um, when this sort of, uh, rights reversion, uh, or termination, right, as it's called in, in the U.S is is implemented um i've done research in 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 book markets basically identifying uh, titles that are subject to the reversionary right and looking to see uh whether they're in print before the the moment of reversion or termination and whether they come back into print after uh after termination uh and the the uh Numbers are really encouraging of the, the data set that I looked at, which was almost 2,000 books, sort of a mix of uh, best-selling books, books by best-selling authors that aren't necessarily best-sellers, and then books reviewed in the New York Times Book Review, very few of which were best-sellers. Um, the estimate was between 20 and 23% were only in print in the U.S. now because of some sort of uh, reversion or, or termination right. We've got a, a bit of a problem in the U.S. sorting out uh, a number of different reversionary effects because before 1976, we had, we had a different reversion rule, which applied to some of the data. Uh, we have this 35-year reversion right for uh, works after 1976. And we had a really interesting, very surprising decision in the early 2000s, which gave ebook rights back to authors who thought they had signed them away. So there was sort of a one-time reversion of ebook rights, and uh, uh, it's it's not we can't be super precise as to what part of the 20 to 23 uh, percent effect we found is due to this 2002 decision or from the older reversion or from the newer reversion. But uh, it's quite clear that when you give authors rights back to their books <laughs> after they think they've signed them away or they've actually signed them away. You get a real bump up in availability. Um, you know, Random House wants to sell 5,000 books uh, a year and really isn't, or at least really wasn't interested in selling uh, books that weren't that popular. Uh, but authors are happy. And trust me, I'm an author. I'm happy to sell 3,000 books a year. I make a decent amount of money if I sell 3,000 books a year. Um, we have, you know, different business models than, uh, than Random House does or, or some of the big publishers and there are smaller publishers out there also who are happy to sell a couple hundred books a, a year. If they have enough of those titles, they can make a decent profit. So, um, 
it's it's not surprising, I guess, that that reversion has resulted in greater um, in greater availability uh, in the U.S. I, I got I have a little bit of Canadian data too. Uh, not everybody knows that Canada currently does have a reversion right, but it kicks in at um, year 25 after the author dies. So it it uh, basically gives the last 25 years of the copyright term to the heirs of the author. So um, it's not quite as uh, broad in scope as the U.S. right, but I, but I did try to identify... Um, uh, a sample of books in Canada which were subject to the right and to compare them with books that weren't subject to the right. And, and my estimate, and again, it's, it's an estimate because there's no, you're sort of reading tea leaves here. If a book's out of print for 20 years, then the 25 years after the death of the author, it comes back into print. You know, we're reading the tea leaves and thinking, ah, well, reversion must be doing some work there. Uh, the figure I came up with for Canada, and I'm looking at it here, okay, it was 10.4%. That, that sounds awfully precise. It's going to be, you know, between 8 or 12, probably, given the fact that we, we can't know for sure what the motivation of the, of the new publisher was. Uh, but, but that was the percent of titles in my sample that I found that were originally published by big publishing companies, went completely out of print, and then after reversion came back into print uh, with small independent presses you know, with a different a publisher with a different uh, a business model. So even the old Canadian regime is doing, doing a little bit of work, and that suggests that uh, a broader, uh, the broader scope being uh, suggested by the, by the two committees uh, might do even more work and might help to, to mitigate some of the damage that might be done by the term extension. This data is, is, as I say, super interesting. One hopes that that policymakers, as they make some of these decisions in terms of where Canada is going, there's trade pressures to be sure, but you hope that you use evidence-based policymaking and there's no one that's done a better job of, of providing some of that evidence than you. And so thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to discuss it. Well, thanks for having me and uh, letting me share all this data. It's a lot of fun. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.